Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, and the last time that we were in Romans, the message was titled From Beginning to End, and it just is such a cool picture of how God knew us, like when we were like embryos, and again, I I think these things, like, so before I was born, like, what what happened, you know, did, did he just make my consciousness and put me into a body and my soul? And it's just such a, an interesting thing that some things we don't have the answers to, but God knows. He knew he was going to create every single person here. He knew he was going to put you in a certain line of people and fill you with a, a body, a mind, and a spirit. And uh, so beginning to end, it's just a powerful message. And today, the message is titled, The Sovereignty of God. And we're going to be in part one. We're only going to cover 15 verses. Because the sovereignty of God is a very deep subject. God is a sovereign. He's a potentate. He's the king. He's the creator. He's all-knowing. You know, he's, uh, he, he's so many things. And, and that's another difficult concept to wrap our minds around. So, you know, we're going to look at God's love for us. We're going to look at him knowing the end from the beginning, but we're also going to look at his absolute will and his ability to do things. Um, But in addition to that, he's also given us free will. So we're going to look at that in four parts. Why am I holding this ant? Because, (laughs) because we just, I've kind of done this little series. It's a little kind of a side, a little vignette sort of, um, that has to do with Romans 1, since we're in Romans, and it just speaks about us seeing God's hand in his creation. So a lot of people think that insects are very simple, and, you know, Darwin thought the cell was very simple, and when the electron microscope was invented 35 years after his death, uh, we saw that he was wrong. <laughs> Everything is very complex in the cell. Even when we look at the world of uh, entomology, which is the study of insects. So we covered the uh, the bee, we covered... The dragonfly, now we're on the ant. So the ant, he has a little smile on his face. They are eusocial insects of the Formicidae family. The root word formis or formic, formic acid, is what they emit with their venom. Uh, Ants are very complex, although you might not think so by just looking at them crawling on the ground. They have the ability to build complex structures. They have the ability to communicate to solve complex problems, pretty impressive. The ants communicate and, you know, go through life through the understanding of touch, smell, feel, and pheromones, which are really chemical signals, smells. They're a complex compound and substance. So an ant, when he finds a block of sugar or whatever, they leave a pheromone trail. And what that tells the other ants is, oh, there must be food on this trail. So they find it. The antenna uh, are actually very mobile, and they touch and they feel, and they actually, the antenna can smell. They find the food. And the other ants go, as you, can, as you know, if you've had them in your kitchen or somewhere you don't want them, like, how, how they all get there here? It's because of the pheromone trail that you can't smell and you can't detect, but they can. Uh, in addition to that, when the trail is done and the food is empty, they stop reinforcing that trail. The ants also have 
Different pheromones, they have an alarm pheromone. So if an ant is crushed or attacked, it emits this alarm pheromone. It lets their other buddies know, hey, I'm under attack. You better come over here and rescue and save me. So they come out in a frenzy. <laughs> in addition, they have what's called a propaganda pheromone. A propag- No, they don't work for the news. <laughs> so the propaganda pheromone is something that they release to confuse enemy ants and sometimes cause them to fight amongst each other. And they know just when to do it and how to do it. Honestly, I could be up here all day talking about the ant, the bee, the dragonfly, but I'm just trying to show you through Romans 1 how God's handiwork is in even the simplest of creatures. So I don't mean to make you feel bad, but next time you step on an ant, uh, maybe you can think about this sermon and and feel bad about it. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I have a struggle too because they they I have the bees and they they try to get the honey and I build concrete pads and it's it's Joe's war with the ants to stop them from going into the beehive. But anyway, uh, Proverbs six t- says in the scripture. Look to the ant, you lazy person. This is right in the scripture. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, which God's word is true. They do work by community. Yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers food at harvest. So even to the lazy person, if you look to the ant, um, you will realize that maybe you should work, maybe you should be doing something productive, because even God's simplest of insects do that. So let's jump in in verse 1, Romans 9. It says this, I tell the truth. This is the Apostle Paul. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Remember, Paul was uh, a very educated, very learned might even been some wealth involved because he studied under Gamaliel. Uh, he was a rabbi of rabbis. He f- believes and you know, Christ appears to him. He believes in Christ. And he has this great desire and burning in his heart for his fellow rabbis, his fellow Jewish people. Um, and again, if you don't study history, you wouldn't know. But the majority of the church that started was Jewish. You know, today it's very different. In some cultures, it's not. Actually, we have quite a few Jewish people in this church that follow uh, because they believe that the scripture points to Jesus as their Messiah. So he has this this torment in a sense, and, and I'll explain that. Maybe torment's not a great word. So he says, For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, right? Looking back into the Old Testament. The giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So one out of four is Paul's sorrow. Now remember, we just came off of this letter to the Romans is to be read in one continuous thought. Um, in our society, we have a little bit of a short attention span, uh, so we, you know, we break things up, which is a good thing, so that we can understand it more and digest it and then take it in its totality. So he's in, in chapter 8, Paul's telling us that we've been adopted by God, God's been with us from the womb to the grave, uh, and here he has sorrow. Why? Why? Because when you truly come to Christ, whether it's Paul or me or any of you, when you truly come to Christ... You all of a sudden think with that glory and that beauty and that excitement and that joy comes, what about those who don't know? Right? 
If you truly have the heart of God inside of you, you're really concerned now, especially for your loved ones who don't know the truth about salvation. You know, I know for me as a new believer, and I'd like to erase those days from everybody's memory, but I was zealous. Like, I wanted everybody to get saved. I was on top of people about it. My wife will tell you. She'll tell you. She's like, yeah, you were, you were obnoxious. You know what I'm saying? In my heart of hearts, I just wanted, even strangers, the guy at the gas station, the girl at the cashier, you know, I just want everybody to get saved and, and know what I know and the peace and the joy and the, and the promises. So th- this is what happens. You know, you, you become moved. Now, What's interesting to note is that John the Baptist and Paul and many others, when they were being ministered to by the Holy Spirit, when they were being grown in their faith, they actually were removed from society. I don't know if you know that. If you read the scripture, Paul spent a time away from society, being discipled, being ministered to by the Holy Spirit, so that not only did he have the zeal, but he also had the knowledge to go with it. The same thing with John the Baptist. He came out, he was brave, he he knew the word. He didn't care what people thought about him. So that would have been good for me, but it it didn't happen that way. Uh, And and the other thing is, and again, let's bring it to today. The same experience when somebody comes to church and they give me what I call the look. They bring somebody and say, hey, this is my friend. (laughs) This is my neighbor. It took me 10 years to get them to come out of church and they, they give me this look. Now, I read body language. I do that well. And that look says, Pastor Joe, I hope that's a really good sermon because I want them to get saved too. Now, no pressure, Pastor Joe, but hit it out of the park. You know what I'm saying? I I know. I know the look. Believe me, I'm I'm poker face, but I know it. Um, And it's because you're you're a love for people that you love. It's very simple. (laughs) So let me just encourage you. The person that's not saved today could be saved tomorrow could be saved at today's service, could be saved in a year from now. So, like, we don't despair. You know, Paul, I love, I love Paul because I feel, I don't know him, I never met him, but through his writings, I feel like he had a lot of passion. He had a great passion for the lost, and he says these things, you know. Moses was the same way. Uh, Moses interceded for the Israelites when their behavior was really poor. And God was like, these people, they're wearing on me. And Moses had that compassion. But where did the compassion come from? The compassion came from God. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, okay, and we're concerned about the lost, and I say this to myself, there's people I love that still aren't saved. And you know what I find solace and comfort in is in my prayer time, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I'm praying for them again because they're not saved yet, um, but I know you love them more than I love them. And then I rest on that. So the compassion that Moses had, the compassion that Paul had, was put into their hearts by the living God because he's the God of love. All right? Now, here's the good, good news. And again, Paul, in his, in his zeal, he's saying, I would be a curse from Christ, so all them, the whole nation, would know Jesus. Well, somebody was cursed for sin, and that was Jesus Christ. And I know Paul knows that. And, and when, he, when he, in his quiet time, he knew that like I know that, like you know that. So Jesus is the one who died for our sins. He was the one who was accursed on a tree so that the whole world could have eternal life. And I rest in that. You know, don't think for a moment that any man or woman or me or Paul or any of you would have more compassion for the lost than God would. So you just keep praying for that person, keep praying for their soul, and let's see what the Lord does. Miracles happen all the time. And 
my question actually is, how much, because every church is a mixture, how much do we care about the unsaved? Does it bother us at all that we know people that don't know the Lord, that are so busy with what goes on in the world that they're not thinking about what happens when they die? Are we concerned? Is our summer schedule or our retirement schedule a hindrance to the, the passion that we have? And, well, I'll just put it on hold. Well, I'll eventually get to it. You know, I just think that we have to pray about our mannerisms, like where I had fallen short. But we want to see people saved. This is why I do what I do up here, um, primarily to, to, you know, to be obedient to God and, and to see people get saved. And if... What, if something I say that's in the word stimulates someone in their heart and they come forward to receive Jesus, then that's, that's very exciting to all of us here. So we look at this. Um, I'll tell you, too, is I think part of my zeal was when I was a police officer and then I became a Christian, um, I would go to death scenes, whether suicide or overdose or a car crash or natural causes. And I just remember going. I'm, I've gone to probably over 100 of them. Going in, I get called. If the person, you know, there's not lividity or a rigor mortis, you know, you do CPR and all that kind of stuff. You're a trained professional. But when it was obvious that somebody had passed, I would, you know, part of the thing you have to do, too, is you have to, it's, it's almost a crime scene until it's determined it was natural causes. So I would spend a lot of time with the body. <laughs> and oftentimes I would look up and say, Lord, are they with you? This is the zeal that I have. So if I offended anybody by jumping on them about getting saved, I apologize, but you have to understand where it's coming from. It's coming from knowing that every day people step into eternity. And we need to catch that bug because that's God's heart too. So let's jump in. (laughs) Verse 6, continuing on, he says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. The word of God is powerful. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So the next two sections are going to be, is, is going to be the real test of a teacher because we're going to go into the sovereignty of God and there's going to be some obvious things that are spoken of that not everybody gets saved. It's not God's fault. It's a, it's a rejection. God has given us free will. Some people reject God and his way of salvation. But in the end, I think we might be surprised. There'll probably be a lot more people in heaven than we realize. Because I believe that God speaks to people when they're in comas, on their deathbeds. I, I ministered to somebody who was very close to me and would never let on that... He actually was one of my neighbors in the past. He would never let on that he, was, he would mock the things of God. And I just loved him. He was a really good guy. He was like a father figure. And um, I ended up doing part of his funeral. And I was really blessed because I don't know if it was a nurse or somebody said that in his last night, he asked everybody to leave the hospital room. And he was just laying there looking at the ceiling and he was praying. And that, that comforted me. It was weird. He was kind of prideful. Like, he didn't want to let on that he was listening. But actually, the night that he died, he, he won everybody out, and he wanted to make his peace with the Lord. Boy, that gave me so much comfort. So you never know what God is doing. It's, it's powerful. But not everyone, too, not everyone is a child of God. And, and that's not politically correct, but it's the truth. 
You know, I mean, that's just the fact here. And, and there's plenty of ministries out there that pack the house. It's all show. It's all glamour. And a lot of these show ministries, they'll never cover the sovereignty of God. Because they may have questions that they have to answer. Some people might leave the church. You know, they always teach these positive, so-called positive things to, to rake it in and to bring people in. But they're not real Bible teachers because this is a hard thing to teach. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm struggling. But <laughs> let's start with the Old Testament because the Apostle Paul was an Israelite, right? He was from the line of, was it the line of Benjamin? And he speaks about these things. But in the Old Testament... It's, it's very clear that not everyone under a certain umbrella was saved. So not all the Israelites were actually had faith in God. They were part of a, a group who was part of a culture. But let's be fair. Not everybody who calls themselves Christians are saved. You know, I mean, people have all kinds of reasons why they're Christians, but it's really not relational. It could be familial. It could be cultural, but it's not a one-on-one relationship with the living God. And anybody can be saved. That's the beautiful thing about this. You know, where are we? Where are our hearts? Where's our free will? Are we choosing God or are we rebelling against him? I'll go in the Old Testament, the Korahite rebellion in Numbers 26, the ground actually opened up and swallowed, uh, swallowed these evil and rebellious people. But they were part of the Israelites. Achan, Joshua 22, um, God didn't give the Israelites the victory because he was a, a, a spy. He was a tear inside of the, this culture, and he had to be dealt with before God would give the Israelites. And he was part of them, right? But he wasn't in their heart. We can look at the Israelite kings. Uh, Jeroboam was a wicked, wicked man, led many of the Israelites in the northern kingdom to worship false gods. He's not in heaven. Or look at the false prophets, the ones that uh, hung out with the kings, the bad kings, and they were getting paid really well to prophesy false things. They weren't saved either. So this shouldn't be as as a surprise or a shock to any of us. Um, The remnant of Israel, Jesus or God would speak about a lot through his Old Testament prophets. We covered this in Isaiah. There was a remnant. But not all Israel was Israel. Not all Israel was saved. And again, not everyone in the Christian culture is truly Christian. You see what I'm saying? Um, You know, following God is not a Facebook statement. It's not a fish on a bumper. It's not a a catchy slogan. It's not a Christianese. It's not a a discussion. It's not a denomination. It's not even hopping the Christian events. It's a way of life. It's one-on-one. See, we don't get into heaven in groups, you know, professional groups, ethnic groups, denominational groups. We get into heaven one-on-one. Jesus said in Matthew 7, there's some that he knew and there's some that he doesn't know. And if you know the Lord, you know that you know the Lord. That's an easy one. If you know that you know the Lord and you, you, you reach out to him and you're praying and it, it's not a, a workspace thing, but you know you have a relationship with him, then you know. Then there's nothing to worry about. But the question is, do you know him? In verse 6, Paul tells us that it's not the fault of God's word, but it's the fault of the human heart. In verse 8, there's another translation that says, it expresses it a little easier. It says, quote, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who regarded as Abraham's offspring. And people do that with the church, right? There's a lot of cultural and generational things in churches. And kids grow up in the church, but you know, you can't ride your parents' coattails into heaven or your grandparents or your culture. It's one-on-one. You know, the things that we enjoy, it, it, this isn't actually a, a bad thing. 
who, who, who doesn't love an incredible relationship with a best friend? Who doesn't love an incredible relationship with a sibling, you know, or a, someone that you're in love with? That same one-on-one that God created, he wants for you. Why would we have one-on-ones with people here and say, this is awesome, and then just kind of throw God religious stuff, throw him some works, you know? So that's not the way it works, you know? And, and I have to come up here and I have to tell you the truth. I'm tasked to do that. Here's the good news. Whoever's not saved here can be saved by the end of right now. In your heart, you can say, Lord, I, I do want you. I hear what he's saying, and you know, I, I know that I know that I don't know you, but I want to know you. It's not going to turn you away. That's the beautiful thing about God. Romans 4, how is Abraham saved? We covered this. It wasn't through circumcision. It wasn't through works. It wasn't because he was of, of a certain line. It was because he had faith in the living God. He had a relationship with God, right? So this is important. We get out of theory, and we get into application here. Verse 9. We're only going up to verse 15. There's a lot to this. This is probably one of the more difficult blocks of verses, but we'll, we'll cover that. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, I'm going to come back to that, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. As it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This goes back to Malachi 1, which we'll get to. So three out of four is, here's where it gets serious. Here's where we get into the theology. Here's where we get into the explanation. What is God saying in his word? Um, I heard that word. It it tweaked me. Please explain it to me. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So we're getting into the sovereignty of God and God knowing the end from the beginning, but we don't. You know, it's an amazing, like an investigation, like we, we look at something on TV and it's a court trial and, and we all do it. And we heard, we read something, the sensationalism in the newspaper and the person gets off. Okay, well, guilty people sometimes get off, but sometimes the person wasn't guilty and they got off. You know, there's a lot of sensationalism. There's a lot of political things going on. And I'm not referring to anything specific. Sometimes I watch court cases. But the point is, the jury and the judge have all the facts. We don't. And you hear the word trial by media. And we're seeing that a lot. It doesn't matter what the case is. Okay? There's a parallel here. God has all the facts. Nobody doesn't get to heaven because they're a good person and God made a mistake or God's mean or God's cruel or God's capricious. None of that. God has all the facts. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows it all. We don't. So consider that as we go through this. But in those days, the older would serve the younger. I'm sorry. The younger would serve the older. The older got the double portion. The older got the double inheritance. But God knew when these babies were in the, in the womb, remember, he knows the end from the beginning. He knew their lifestyle. He knew their choices. He knew if they were going to come to God. You know, when you have a newborn and you look at that baby, you don't know anything. You have no idea. Trust me, as a parent of a 19-year-old, you have no clue what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, which way they're going to go. You just don't know. But God knows right? And that's important for us to understand here. So Hagar and Abraham have Ishmael, but the younger Isaac by Sarah was the son of the promise. 
right? Same thing with Jacob and Esau. Now, he said in verse 13, let me not skip by it and, and take the coward's way out. As it is written, this is in the Old Testament prophet Malachi, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What does that mean? See, because we, again, we, we take our culture, we hear what we hear on the news, and we go, oh my goodness, this church is preaching hate. It's nothing like that. If you look at, we're going to go to a scripture that Jesus uses. If you look at the scripture, sometimes words are used based on a comparison. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, right, this was in, originally in the Hebrew, then the, the Greek-speaking people pick it up, they write it Koine Greek in the Romans, but in the Hebrew, there was, every word had a large, what's called a semantic range. So based on context, you pick a certain word, okay? A better translation would be that I have accepted Jacob, but I've rejected Esau. Why? Because God knows the end from the beginning. Remember, 1 Peter 1 tells us that God's election is according to his foreknowledge. Let's keep that in mind. God already knows. It's not like he's going to say, well, gee, I don't know, and I'll I'll let let everything play out. He knows everything that's going to happen before it's happened. So Jacob's life, Jacob wasn't the greatest guy, but Jacob turned to God. So Jacob, in the beginning, you might say, oh, this kid's gone bad. And Esau, you know, he, he lived off the land. He seemed maybe quiet to himself. And you might think, well, he, he's going to be the one who does well. You know what's funny? It was the reverse. Esau eventually um, rejected the things of God, rejected the way of God, rejected the relationship. Jacob had a rough start, but he turns it around. Isn't that neat? First Samuel 16, 7 says that, you know, when the prophet is looking at the sons of Jesse to be the new king, he sees the big warrior. He sees this son, and he keeps saying, well, is it this one, God? Surely this guy looks like king material. And God had to rebuke the prophet and say, listen, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God was saying, no, no, no. When he got to the little ruddy David, the little uh, goat herder, sheep herder, he goes, that's the one I've chosen. Samuel's like, And we would have been the same thing. We'd have been like, you know, kings were warriors, and he certainly doesn't fit the bill. But God was like, I know his heart. You don't. You can't. It's not a human characteristic to know. That's why Jesus says, don't judge people, right? We judge people. Judge people based on appearance. And then that person comes to God, and we feel stupid. We're like, well, why did I judge that person? Well, Jesus said, don't judge them. (laughs) You know, I know eternal things. You don't. So there's a lot to this. Um... Let's turn to Luke fourteen twenty six. Here, let me dig myself a bigger hole, and then let me get a ladder and get out of it. <laughs> and yeah, people are surprised when they read the Gospels and like Jesus said that. Wait a minute, my my whole impression of who Jesus is just got shot to pieces. Okay, well let's look at it in its context. Luke fourteen, starting in. Verse 25, Christ teaches on discipleship. And great multitudes went with him. They're always following Jesus in the beginning until some of his teachings, and a lot of them left. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, there's that word again, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, my life too, also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
oh, wow, I, I don't think I want to be a Christian anymore. Follow this Jesus that you preach, this God of love. Remember, this is by comparison. And a lot of times when he would speak to the multitudes, he would purposely say hard things. Some would just take it at its surface and walk away. Others would come back and say, Lord, Master, I don't understand this. Tell me the deep things of what you're trying to say. And Jesus would gladly do it, would gladly do it. We're told to love. He's the God of love. So when Jesus says this, you have to say to yourself, there's got to be more to the story than what I'm reading on the surface. And this is why when people who are antagonistic to Christians and Christians get flustered, I see it all the time. They'll pick something out of context. They'll say it and people go, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to defend my faith. That's why we got to know the word. Because precisely with this type of scripture, right? In comparison, God has to be number one. You know, listen, I'm a parent. We can get caught up in, especially when they're little, making little gods out of our children. We let them do whatever they want. We, we don't discipline them. Uh, and they become little monsters. And then society has to deal with them. And then an employer doesn't want to hire them. So, you know... If you look at the big picture, and this is, this is a hard thing for even Christians to say, oh, I've got to put God number one. But when you put God number one, everything else falls into place. Amen. So let's go back to uh, Malachi. Well, let me just give you another example. Because this, this one necessitates a lot of example. Far be it for me to have to defend God. I don't have to. If you read the entire scripture, if you read Genesis to Revelation, and you really understand it, and you ask God for an understanding, you don't need me. He'll make it perfectly clear. You'll see he's the God of love. You'll see he's a very fair God. In Genesis 4, something very interesting happens. Not a whole lot of people on the earth, Adam and Eve and their children, and there's two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? And Abel brings a sacrifice to the Lord. He knows what's expected of God. He brings it to the Lord. God says, I've accepted your sacrifice. Cain brings a sacrifice that's substandard. It was very easy for him to pick a, book, pick a few things, put it together and say, oh, here you go, God. And God rejected his sacrifice. So Cain now starts to develop a jealousy against his brother Abel because Abel now is accepted and Cain is not. Remember, accepted, rejected. So this is an interesting thing. In Genesis 4, there's a little conversation that takes place between God and Cain. Now, God knows what Cain's going to do. And he's trying to still appeal to him. And he says to Cain, you know, if you do right, will you not be accepted? There's that word again, accepted. But if you do wrong, sin lies at the door. And its desire is to rule over you. The next verse, Cain's having, I mean, people would do anything for a conversation with God. where It's going back and forth. So Cain leaves. He goes, finds his brother out in the field. He takes a rock and he kills him. He smashes him in the head, the first murder. He murders his brother, his own brother. Again, there's not a lot of people on the earth. And Cain's heart was wicked. Pharaoh's heart was wicked. We see this in the scripture. There's going to be people among us who are tares. They're not really true believers. They're in churches for the wrong reasons. You know, people have wicked hearts and wicked motives. But if you look at the this, this story with Cain, even though God still tried to appeal to him, he tried to appeal to Pharaoh too, just so you know. They still went their own way. They still made their choices. You know, God loved us so much, he didn't make us slaves. He gave us a lot of, he gave us free will. 
You can choose today to say, I'm not buying this nonsense. I've been to the church for the, long, for the first time. I really like that TV preacher because he doesn't make me think about these things. And this isn't like tough. He says nice things all the time, pastor. So I think I'm going to go listen to him. That's your choice. But they're not telling you the truth. They're not giving you the whole picture. They can't because it'll ruin their whole Ponzi scheme. So when we go back to Malachi, um, let me just go to Malachi and then (laughs) let me wrap it up for you. So Malachi 1, the Apostle Paul refers back to that. It's in the Old Testament, almost word for word. Malachi 1.1, the burden or the prophecy. Sometimes prophecy was a burden because sometimes the word was very heavy. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Remember, I I like, I prefer accepted and rejected. And I'll tell you why. Because Esau became the father of the Edomites. Now, this is history. You can go secular history, look this up. It's not any Christian contrivance. The Edomites became what we call the Idumeans. The Idumeans became, they gave rise to the Herods. So you see the line, who were the Herods? The Herods were the false messiahs. Think about that. Isn't that amazing how God knows? Centuries go by, people are like, oh, I read the scripture. This is a hard thing to swallow. And then all of a sudden, the rise of the Herods. These were cruel men. They were false messiahs, and they competed with Jesus for the affections of the people. Following the Herods would lead you to damnation. However, Jesus was the true Messiah, and some people did follow the Herods. So what is God saying here? I already know what Esau is going to do. I already know what the Edomites and the Edomians and the Herods, I already know what's going to happen. So knowing the end from the beginning, I've rejected one and I've accepted the other. Make sense? It's heavy. There's, there's a, if you're new to the church and new to the Bible, you're like, what did I just walk into? You know what I'm saying? It's heavy, but it's, it's the truth. I'm trying. <laughs> now, does God, does God prohibit anybody from getting into heaven? The answer is no. He does not. If you truly want the Lord, he wants you. But, but he's elected. Well, his election is according to foreknowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. But he's a sovereign potentate. Yes, he is. But he, but he, but he. Um, so there's this, this idea, and I've heard it explained to me. It's almost like there's this door to eternity. And the door is closed. And you go to open it, and it says, free will, choosing God. You open the door. You walk through it. You close it. You're in heaven. You look back. And on the other side of the door, it says, that God elected you from the foundations of the world. He chose you. So I think Spurgeon, when they said, how do you rectify these two? How do you reconcile them? And Spurgeon said, he goes, you don't have to reconcile friends. We do have free choice. We do have free will, but God also knows. And God also chooses. Honestly, if you, <laughs> if you were, were considering, like you grew up with these twins and they're wonderful people, right? If you're a girl, they're guys. If you're a guy, they're girls. And they're just so wonderful and they're so identical. And you're kind of just in love with them. If you know one of the twins is going to accept your marriage proposal and the other one's not, which one are you going to ask to marry you? 
right? The one who's going to accept your marriage proposal. So a lot of analogies here, but I feel it's necessary because people have to understand what this means. So let me give you some advice. Don't twist your mind over this. How about just choose God? Amen? Is God going to reject you? So there's a, a, I probably shouldn't throw this in here, but I'm going to. There's a a doctrine, I guess you could say it's hyper-Calvinism. It's called double predestination. I actually have a really good friend. We, were spent, we spent an hour together talking yesterday. He goes, I don't, I don't believe in that. I said, I know not all Calvinists believe it, but it's scary the ones who try to explain it. By the way, it's a false doctrine, so let me just say what it is. Uh, double predestination means that God created a whole bunch of people, millions, billions, to love and to get them to heaven, and he just loves them and he chooses them. He creates a whole other segment of people. And this is, how, this is why we need to read our Bibles, because this, this twisted stuff finds its way into theology and into the church, and it's actually quite frightening. So the other group of people could be millions or billions. God raises them up. No matter how much they try to come to him or choose him, he's rejected them, he hates them, and he damns them all to hell. And I actually I had some pretty good, intense heated debates with some who believe in this stuff. I'm like, how could you preach this to people? Here's the other thing. Full sovereignty without free choice breeds laziness. Let's think about this. I always say, take a doctrine and bring it to its logical conclusion. So God is sovereign. You know, if he, if he loves you, Hey, you can't resist it. He loves you and you can't, you know, resist his love advances. So you're going to go to heaven. No matter what you do, that's great. No matter what you think, no matter what you choose. The other segment well, God hates me and, you know, he's picked me out to be damned, so why bother? So think about this. So the person on both sides, it, it, breeds, it breeds an incredible laziness. The truth is you have free will. You have free will to choose. So choose him. When we give the altar call at the end of the day, you want God? You know that you don't have a living relationship with him? I don't care about religion. I grew up in religion, too. And my behavior was the worst. And my thought processes were the worst. I had no peace. I had no joy because it was just a Sunday thing. God wants to walk with you every day. He loves you that much. So verse 14, the last few verses, it says, now remember, this is only half the chapter. We're going to really wrap it up next Sunday. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So Paul would ask these questions because these are the questions that people, just like today, some people might go, well, that's not fair. So he's saying it in a different way. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Again, he knows the end from the beginning. So four out of four is, is God unfair? Again, we can only come to that conclusion with our limited knowledge of the facts. I personally... You know, I testified. Actually, there were times that they, I think they used me in a civil trial. So I've been in the court system. Um, it's a very interesting system. Would I want to be on a murder trial? Put me in the jury box um, without the information and the facts, the prosecutors, the defense, the forensics, the, you know, all the analysts and the experts. Hey, Joe, just come in here into the court. Just throw, just throw your lot, good or bad. Make a decision. No, I wouldn't want to do that. So it's this, I'm like, this, this person's life could be in my hands. I could be the deciding vote. I want to know all the evidence. I want to know all the facts. By the same token, we can't assume or presume that God is wrong or God made a mistake based on limited information. He has all the facts, and we have to understand that. 
Once we start going down the road saying how different life would be or if we were God, I would do this if I was God, then basically we've made ourselves a God erroneously, and it's a dangerous slide. Some resist God's call to salvation because they, now this is, I've seen this a lot, they actually resist the call to God's salvation is because they worry about their loved ones who aren't saved yet. Okay, how do you know God isn't going to use you to win the rest of your family? I've seen that a, 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 a dozen times. A person gets saved and they could never imagine. God used them to bring their friends and their neighbors and their, their loved ones to faith. That's a great thing. God wants to use us in his kingdom. That's pretty cool. So, so, and I don't understand the logic. Well, I'm not going to get saved because there's still people I love that aren't saved. Well, wouldn't you want some information and wouldn't you want some Holy Spirit power to do something and help these people get across the finish line? I throw a lot of logic in here. Uh, so the question that you have to ask yourself now is, am I his? You have to also ask yourself the question, do I want to be his? And it all starts, don't put the cart before the horse, it all starts with responding to the call of God in your life. Romans 10, 17 tells us, tells us that one of the ways that God calls us is through sermons, is through his word. There's power in the word. Some of you are considering this, and I would just encourage you to say, when all the dust settles, do you need to know God's sovereignty to get saved? No. Do you need to know theology to get saved? No. Do you need to fully understand what I just read to get saved? No. What you need to do is respond to the living God and his love and be one of his chosen. It's your choice. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road, in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.